Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 83 for the 2nd 3rd of August 2013. Today is all about David Sarita, or some about David Sarita, more next time. There's no specific claim to talk about for this episode. This episode is going to be part of a case study about the man named David Sarita. That's S-E-R-E-D-A. Over the past few weeks, I've listened to over 40 hours of interviews by four different interviewers. They've spanned nearly a decade of time. This episode is organized somewhat chronologically with how the man's claims have evolved over the years, and then I'm going to go into more of a clip show format, discussing a very few of the various claims. More will be discussed in the next episode. In fact, the next one will be exclusively about various claims that Sarita makes. This is also a good time to plug the Facebook page for the podcast. I've posted several clips that I've transcribed while listening to these interviews to the Facebook page, and we've had some pretty good discussions and head shakings over them. To join in the fun, just go to facebook.com slash exposingpseudoastronomy, all one word. One of the reasons that I subjected myself to so much of David Sarita over the past few weeks is that the few times that I've heard him before, it was all new-agey stuff. He had some, shall we say, interesting ideas about physics and how things work, and it was very Deepak Chopra-esque, with quantum mechanics this and quantum mechanics that. But then I found out that in his earlier interviews, it was all about pretty much exclusively UFOs, so I wanted to see how he had changed. I ended up taking nearly 10,000 words of notes during those interviews. The earliest interview that I had of him was from 2004, when he was interviewed by the venerable Art Bell, and supposedly the interviews by Art Bell go back as far as 2001. At that time, his bio was this. I told you tonight was UFO related, and so it shall be. David Sarita's first aspiration in life, he's our guest coming up, was to become an astronaut. That's what he wanted. In 1968, though, David and a friend witnessed a UFO, along with hundreds of other witnesses. And, once again, after this experience, David grew up, you might have imagined, as a UFO enthusiast, never living in doubt of the phenomena that has swept the world since the Roswell incident in 1947. His interest in space, religion, philosophy, astronomy, science has led him on his career in related fields. He's worked deeply in high technology on environmental and humanitarian issues and as a professional photographer for over 20 years. He studied world religion, science, physics, and paranormal uh, psychology for over 25 years. So he's very clearly a UFO guy, and the focus of many of his early interviews really was on UFOs, but it diverged into how the UFO craft allegedly work. Pulling information from numerous other interviews, David claims that after his UFO incident, he was contacted while asleep by the beings in the craft, and they told him that they were from the Pleiades. They also told him how their spacecraft work. Remember, he was only a child when this happened, though. David claims that it's that that drove many of his future pursuits, including faster-than-light contact with the Pleiadians, that I'll get to later, and anti-gravity and the horribly misnamed zero-point energy stuff. 
In interviews for the first couple of years that I listened to, David focused on being a UFO commentator, but also he got into these other areas, claiming to support and actually to conduct experiments on perpetual motion and over-unity devices as well as anti-gravity. He was big for a few years on he was developing a car that negated gravity to 50% in order to reduce the energy consumption. For another example, in the second interview that I listened to, Sarita was on with John Hutchison, who claims to have basically figured out a method for anti-gravity. Sarita was on with Hutchison because of that link, and he shared his method that I'll get to in a little bit. That's not to say that Sarita didn't misuse an expletive amount of physics terms early on, but what he told at that point was still somewhat cogent. And I should note at this point that these are my own observations, these are my own opinions, and that after every interview I did write a short summary to sort of collect my thoughts and figure out how he had changed or if it was similar to other material that he had discussed. By late 2005, Sarita was getting a lot more into his, shall we say, interesting ideas about physics, misusing and misunderstanding many terms. In each interview after this point, he would introduce some kind of evidence that he would use in later interviews as quote-unquote proof for various phenomena. One of his favorite were the water experiments by Masaru Emoto, which I'll link to the Rational Wiki page for. Emoto claimed, and I think still claims, that when he was playing soothing music to water and then flash froze it, it looked pretty. But when he played jarring music to the water and flash froze it, it looked ugly. He uses this, as in David Sarita tries to use this, to provide evidence for various things, such as water is mostly hydrogen, the universe is mostly hydrogen, and since water can sense consciousness and react based on Emoto's experiments, then the universe is also somewhat conscious and has memory, and that hydrogen is the storage mechanism. Can anyone spot the numerous logical fallacies there? His other favorite early-on example was an experiment by a world-famous astronomer, and though David told the story many times, he could never actually remember the astronomer's name. This guy supposedly did an experiment where he put mustard seeds up to the eyepiece of a telescope, he then attached electrodes to the seeds, and then he aimed the telescope at the star Sirius, which is a little more than eight light years away. In the light of Sirius, the mustard seeds reacted. He used this to claim that the phenomena of biophotons exist, and these biophotons travel faster than light and can communicate with things faster than light, and so this is evidence also that plants have consciousness and various other things besides faster than light travel. So already by 2005, he was really kind of out there, but he really seemed to be branching off from the UFO stuff. By 2006, his New Age claims were increasing, and they were bolstered by his very poor understanding of physics and use of technobabble, he would have put a Star Trek writer to shame. He was also into the idea of a top-secret Tesla death ray that he claimed five years later that he was offered to see in action and that it was responsible for shooting down the space shuttle Columbia. That didn't stop him from saying on September 27, 2006, that he had started a petition to Congress in order to get him on the space shuttle so that he could search for evidence of UFOs. Also around this time, pretty much every interview was David Sarita plugging a new movie that he had made, such as From Here to Andromeda or Singularity. By 2007, he was barely mentioning UFOs anymore. 
or the anti-gravity experiments on cars that he had said years earlier that he was working on to solve our energy problems. He also was never asked about them as a follow-up from years earlier. By 2008, he had started to adapt his ideas to the 2012 meme. In 2009, his New Age stuff really started bringing in the quantum nonsense that, for those of us who are skeptics, we know and quote-unquote love. In my notes for the episode where he first really brought in quantum stuff, I wrote down, and we have quantum liftoff. Later that year, he merged it with harmonic stuff, such as sacred geometry, numerology, and he brought it all very clearly into the 2012 meme. If you actually were to listen to all 40 hours that I did, there is a fairly organic migration, although to a cynic, it would seem as though he was trying to capitalize on the popular culture to push his ideas and sell his goods, such as rocks that he vibrationally charged and put into a pendant that he calls Light Stream Quantum Vibration Jewelry. They start off at 111 Canadian dollars, and they go up to 888 Canadian dollars. Again, if one were cynical, then the next several interviews throughout 2010 and 2011 really were to capitalize on disasters or popular memes and to use those as a launching point for his ideas. For example, he was on in 2010 about the Gulf oil spill. In 2011, he was on about Fukushima, and later in 2011, he was on about Comet Elenin, though in each one, he actually spent very little time actually talking about those subjects. UFOs didn't even come up, and the bio that was read for him didn't really mention the UFO angle anymore. With that said, David Sarita has not been on Coast to Coast AM since September 27th, 2011, when he claimed to be in verbal communication with aliens from the Pleiades, those first ones from his childhood. During that interview, George Norrie flat out said that David either has a very active imagination or he's seeing some genuinely weird phenomena. I don't know if David hasn't been on because of his own choice or because of Coast to Coasts, but it is odd that he was on five times in 2011, two in 2010, three in 2009, four in 2008, three in 2007, three in 2006, five in 2005, and two in 2004, plus several others before that, but none since September 2011. Now, the reason for that to me, very brief after listening to the guy for 40 hours, but to you all probably pretty long, overview is to get a flavor for the guy, similar to what I did for Greg Braden back in episode 17. I think how these guys evolve their ideas is fascinating, and it offers insight into whether they're true believers or just trying to make a quick buck. With that in mind, the rest of the episode is going to focus on really just two or three different specific claims and classes of claims. With the last 11 minutes of background out of the way, the next episode will focus entirely on many more claims. The first claim that I want to talk about is that of the Japanese author and entrepreneur Masaru Emoto and his water experiments. I gave you the overview before, although I did simplify it a little bit. Emoto claims that human consciousness has an effect on the molecular structure of water. Water being a liquid, meaning that molecules have no set structure and freely move about and take on whatever shape they are contained in, of course. In other words, from the onset, Emoto's claims violate basic chemistry and physics. The experiments themselves were never blinded and are highly subjective. By blinded, I mean that Emoto knew what he was doing to each water sample, and he was the one conducting the analysis. 
By subjective, well, you can tell that from the experiments themselves. The experiments involved playing different kinds of music, speaking different words with different emotions attached, and even showing different types of pictures to glasses of water. Then he froze the water and he examined the aesthetics of the ice crystals with microscopic photography. Emoto claimed that the water that was shown, or that listened to good stuff, was beautiful and geometric when frozen, but that the water that was shown or listened to bad stuff was random and chaotic. How many subjective things can you count in that explanation? And yet, Emoto has sold over 2 million copies of his books, including Messages from Water, Volumes 1 and 2, despite being pretty much universally criticized by the scientific community for subjectivity, lack of controls, lack of blinding, the premise itself violating basic chemistry and physics, not sharing details of his method with the scientific community so they could test it, and various other reasons. Now, the reason that I'm talking about Emoto's work for about two minutes is because an entire interview in October 2008 was dedicated to Sarita's take on hydrogen and water and the book Water, the Great Mystery. He started out with Emoto's experiments as the basis for his evidence for what he was claiming. He used this to claim that water has memory and consciousness. The evidence in support of water having memory and consciousness is so overwhelming, and, and the arguments against it are because we don't know why and how it has memory and consciousness. And because we can't explain how it works, he says we can't even explain how gravity and why gravity works, yet we know gravity exists. How many logical fallacies can you spot in that? I heard at least two argument from ignorance, and a complete non-sequitur with respect to the whole gravity part. Later in that interview, David claimed that someone did an experiment where they poured water from one pitcher into two glasses. They separated the glasses and then, quote, when you expose information to one pitcher of water, the other, at a distance, restructures itself according to that information instantly, using atomic clocks instantly. Put it succinctly, that's impossible. Not just because faster-than-light communication is probably not possible given what we know of physics, it's also impossible because the claim itself makes no sense. Water is a liquid. It has no structure. It can't carry this nebulous idea of information, as Sarita claims. But Sarita is definitely a fan of water. He was very keen on the idea that it has memory. In fact, to get one up on the skeptics, he claimed this, referring to optical discs. And he says, your entire movie is in that plastic. And then a thin mirror coating <laughs> goes on the bottom. The laser scans through and bounces off the mirror on the bottom through the plastic and reads it. And then on your TV screen, you're seeing this whole movie. Well, it, is a, it is amazing, isn't plastic it? Plastic has memory. <laughs> this whole movie, you're watching the sound, the pictures, and the absolute pristineness on your big plasma, that's in a sheet of plastic. So for scientists who don't believe water has memory, just look at ordinary plastic. I think that's at least the second false analogy or false equivalency fallacy that we've heard in this episode. If that's too tall of a glass to swallow, it's just a taste. A theme throughout the 40 hours of interviews that I listened to was faster-than-light communication in some way, shape, or form. I'm not going to go into all the ways that he claimed this, 
but rather I'm going to focus on his claim related to UFOs. To piece this together, I'm going to use three longish clips, all from his June 4th, 2005 interview. First is the how. What happens when you reduce the mass gravity effect by wave transforming mass? It eventually becomes translucent, then it turns to light, and then it disappears in these different spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum that we do not see. And that is why there are so many accounts today, for example, of these digital home digital um, cameras where people are taking photos on their vacations and they download the photos and there's UFOs in them they couldn't see. If you're not quite sure what he was trying to say, he's basically arguing that UFOs are at a higher frequency, so the craft becomes massless and so the craft aren't limited by light speed. It's that simple. It makes no sense, but moving on, the next clip is his observational evidence for this phenomenon. I started, you know, analyzing the NASA UFO videos and a lot of, you know, UFO video and noticed that this probably the secret to their propulsion systems is that you could clearly see these waves of what appear to be electromagnetic energy uh-huh. strobing around the craft. Right. And because, for example, with infrared cameras in space, the background of space is very cold, and when an electromagnetic move, uh, wave moves or strobes through um, the energy in space, the subatomic you know, particles in space, you get friction and you get a heat signature, so you can actually see the waves. And because of my background in working for nuclear physicists, I could translate those waves, and they told me what they were doing. And then when I found John Hutchison was doing the same thing with steel, and causing it to levitate, it was like Eureka, oh my god, that's the connection. I'll get into his background and his uh, claims of working with nuclear physicists in a little bit. But finally, to complete this part of the story, is a four-minute clip describing the alleged physics. If you're enjoying this episode at home, and you're of legal age, I recommend a drinking game during this clip. Anytime he mentions duality, take a sip. Positive or negative, take a sip. Anything that starts with sing, as in singularity, singular, singly, anything like that, take a very tiny sip. And in this paper, um, he talks about um, all matter being born out of a singularity called the sea of negative energy. See, matter, uh, I'll I'll use a spiritual model here to explain how matter is born into duality and also the actual you know, subatomic level, and keep it simple. You know, I'll keep it short and simple. You know, you go back to the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve are told not to partake of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you do, you'll surely die. Well, when you take in good and evil, good and evil is a conflict, which is actually a duality. It's positive and negative energy. And alleged, I mean, if you imagine the angelic kingdom is in a state of singularity or, or oneness, there is no duality there. There is no conflict. Duality falls into a lower dimension, and in that, in that ignorant state, it becomes physical. Hmm. Now, uh, without getting too philosophical, basically what happens is if millions of people take in the knowledge of good and evil, they each define egotistically what is good and what is evil, and they're always different, so we always end up fighting. Now, coincidentally or not, the atom is coded with the same information. Atom and the atom, a hydrogen atom has a proton, which is positively charged, and an antiproton, which spins negative, so positive, negative, and you have an electron, which spins negative, and you have an anti-electron spinning positive. So it's, this, it's just like good and evil, it's duality. Now, if you can, t- light, 
The only particle we know of that can bounce off of the Earth that escapes gravity, the true anti-gravity particle is a photon, is single. Now, Jesus says in the Gospels, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. Coincidentally, when you end duality in matter, you become single. And that singular, the only particle in physics we know of that is single is light. Now, light has to move through an actual ether, an actual background of space, which itself is a wave, so it pushes against it, it meets some resistance, and it has a limit of the speed of light. But Dirac's sea of negative energy, which is singly charged, light is singly charged, positive single charge. Imagine this sea of negative energy that, that, that is singly charged. If, you know, if you're singly charged, there's no resistance. You don't encounter inertia in entire space, uniform space pervading the entire universe that is single. Because um, resistance, inertia, is born when, t- when you have two waves that are opposing each other. Which David, is, this well, is really all quantum, isn't it? It's quantum. Yeah. So Dirac's paper is, is, uh, is, and the sea of negative energy shows the birth of matter from this singularity. Now, if you could slip your UFO, first of all, Reducing it down to zero, this is where the real zero point is, because it's a singularity zero. It's not a dual electric field like we have here. You know, the alternating current that Tesla invented is positive-negative, positive-negative. Right. Well, when you enter singularity, you're so far beyond the speed of light, it's ridiculous. In fact, you can't even use it because everything is instantaneous because there's no resistance. So you could conquer any distance. You could go from here to Andromeda. Yeah, well, that, that would explain the quantum communication that otherwise is completely inexplicable. Exactly, because it's instantaneous over any distance. Yes. Now, if we can tap into Dirac's sea of... And don't, don't be misconstrued by the word negative energy. It's not negative spiritual energy. It's just it's spinning counterclockwise. But it's singularity that I'm talking about. And a lot of physicists today are looking for something beyond the dual paredness of the dual state of matter, and they're looking for what's called singularities. And sometimes, some people believe they're at the end of a black hole and the end of the Einstein-Rosen bridges, and Dirac is saying that there is a pathway into this sea of energy and where it is where all matter is born from and it returns. And that may be philosophically what even happened when you consider... The, the resurrection of Christ. I mean, he took physical mass and he transformed it into life. Got all that? Drunk yet? That was 43 sips that you should have taken in those four minutes, for those of you who were keeping track. All right, a few points. First off, Paul Dirac did hypothesize that the vacuum of space can be thought of as an infinite sea of particles with negative energy. He used that to explain weird negative energy quantum states that were predicted by the equation that bears his name, the Dirac equation, for relativistic electrons. A relativistic electron is an electron moving near the speed of light, or very, 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 very close to the speed of light. Dirac used this to predict the existence of the positron, the antimatter counterpart of the electron, before its discovery two years later, in 1932. With that in mind, it does have a place in quantum mechanics today. It's not some hidden paper that mainstream scientists didn't accept. It also really has nothing to do with what David Sarita is trying to say. And if you can figure out what he was trying to say, take another celebratory drink. Because I can't. But there are a couple of other things to pick apart. One is the structure of an atom.
What he said about the structure of an atom wasn't a slip of the tongue. He repeats it in probably about half of the 20 interviews that I listened to. He claims that the hydrogen atom is made not only of a proton and an electron, but also of an antiproton and an antielectron. Not only that, but he claims that it's the spin that's positive and negative, except in the case of the proton, in which case it's the electric charge that's uh, different from something else. Bluntly, he's wrong. All you need for a hydrogen atom is a proton. A proton is alternatively defined as a hydrogen atom, a single lone proton. You can add an electron, and then the total net charge on the atom is zero, because the proton and the electron have the same magnitude of charge, but the proton is opposite, positive, to the electron, which is negatively charged. Antiprotons do exist, as do antielectrons, which are called positrons. But the only thing different is the charge. Both positrons and electrons have a one-half spin, since they're leptons, which are a class of fermions, which all have one-half or half-integer spins, so one-half, three-halves, five-halves, those kind of things. Protons and antiprotons are baryons, which are a class of hadrons, but they're also made of three quarks, and so they're also fermions that have half-spins as well. But not negative. You can have a negative spin, but protons and electrons, positrons and antiprotons, all have one-half spins. Positive one-half spins. Not negative. The only thing different is the charge, and that they're made of antiquarks instead of normal quarks. But this whole idea of matter and antimatter somehow coexisting within a single atom is very, very, very wrong. It would self-destruct almost instantly, releasing a ton of energy. And ton, I'm, I'm using a non-specific colloquial term. Another quick thing from that clip is that light is not charged at all. It's not positively charged, it's not negatively charged. Photons are electrically neutral. Beyond that, it's really hard to pick out too much else from those clips. His bulk macro idea is that you can somehow make your spacecraft have less mass by vibrating at a higher frequency. And he literally means that somehow stuff that's visible is actually physically vibrating at the frequency of the light that it's reflecting. So he literally means that if you vibrate at a higher frequency, then you'll change the wavelength of light that you reflect, which is why UFOs go invisible to the human eye, and when that happens, then you can somehow reduce your mass to zero, and so get around the speed limit of light because you don't have to accelerate any mass. Except that according to relativity, the speed of light is still the speed limit for a massless particle. You can't travel faster than light. My purpose in belaboring these quotes and picking through them are twofold. First, it's the whole reason for this podcast. I think that you can learn more by understanding where pseudoscience goes wrong. Second, I'm using it to point out that David Sarita's grasp of physics and astronomy and various other things is very, very poor. However, earlier you heard him say that he worked with nuclear physicists. Now, I'm not trying to do an ad hominem attack against him personally but I'm rather trying to counter what he would bring up in almost every interview, just like the brief mention that you heard, his work with nuclear physicists as apparent evidence that he knows what he's talking about. I worked 
with the most brilliant nuclear power plant and nuclear scientists in the history of this country, also in the field of nuclear fusion. Because I fought for 10 years uh, for helium-3 fusion with my boss, Dr. Bojan castle Magwitch, the, the inventor at MIT of that process. In practically every interview, David alluded in similar terms to his past employment history, that he worked with nuclear physicists on research for fusion. In fact, his earlier interviews were very much based on that because he was talking about sources for energy and how the United States and the world's energy policy is silly right now. Now, to me, that sounds like an argument from authority. At first, it sounds very much like, okay, he's giving his background, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, usually if I'm introduced or if I introduce myself, I'll say, you know, my name is Stuart Robbins, I have a PhD in geophysics through an astrophysics department, I study craters on Mars. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you use that background in the context of defending your outrageous claims, which he did when confronted by a caller in a 2011 interview that I might play next time, then it goes from, I'm giving you my background, to, trust me, I worked in fusion, therefore I know what I'm doing. It's like if I were to, again, give my background, and then if I were to say something like, um, quantum mechanics says that grass is green because we like it. And trust me, because I study craters on Mars. That's a silly analogy that I came up with the top, on the top of my head, as you can tell, because it's unedited, but it's the same basic idea. It becomes an argument of authority, in my opinion, when you use it to justify a claim, as opposed to putting out your background so that people know the context that you're coming from. It's also relevant when he makes claims such as this. You look at our planet Jupiter. Jupiter's made of the same stuff. It's 90% hydrogen, 10% helium. The sun is, it's, uh, I just have it here in front of me, it's pretty much the same. I mean, the numbers are just slightly different. Numbers are different, but it's the same. 92% hydrogen and 7.8% helium. So why is the sun producing light and fusion and, and, and Jupiter isn't? And I think the answer is not in, is the temperature correct? Is the, is, are the elements correct? It has to do with the waveforms, the structure. Remember, this is a guy who claims that he worked with nuclear fusion experiments and he doesn't understand why Jupiter is not a star. And just for members of the audience who don't know, it's because it's not nearly massive enough to have a temperature and pressure large enough in the core to undergo fusion. You have to get to about 80 times the size of Jupiter to become a star, to get temperatures and pressures high enough for that to happen. But David should know that if he worked on fusion or in the nuclear field at all. It's, it's basic stuff. And as someone who claims this authority, he should really know it. Now, it's only in a single interview, one out of those 20 that I listened to, maybe 30 seconds out of the 40 hours, or 30 seconds or 40 seconds out of the 144,000 seconds that I listened to, teeny tiny bit, that David elaborated by explaining that he worked not with the science, but on finding funding. With all of that in mind, and going through just these very very few examples. I think that it's enough for one episode. I'm already past the 30-minute mark. So I'm breaking this into two parts, and the second part, as I've said, is going to be coming out next episode where I'll discuss more arguments from authority on things like the Tesla death ray, David's claims about harmonic codes, sacred geometry, some quantum mechanics, dark matter, and also various other things. 
Again, the purpose isn't to rip into the man who I'm not having on to defend himself, but rather to explore his particular claims, ones that are similar to those by other pseudoscientists, and then to use them to understand actual physics and astronomy by showing where they are in error. Moving past the other segments, it's time for the puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. There have not been any submissions for last episode's puzzler, so I'm going to give it again, especially because this is a two-part episode about David Sarita's claims. I mentioned that Richard Hoagland actually claims that the orientation relative to the spinning sphere matters in terms of his lessening of the mass or changing the inertia of something. If that's the case, how would you modify the basic design of the experiment that I outlined in the previous episode, and what additional things would you need to keep track of? Try to figure out the answer, send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss that, hopefully, this time during the next episode, as in, someone, please send in anything? By way of announcements, the only one is that I will be at the TELUS Science Museum in Georgia, that's the United States, speaking on Friday, September 5th. I'll be giving a very abridged version of the TAM workshop on imaging for skeptics. I really don't quite know what they have planned for me during the day on Friday, but if anyone is in the area, please come on by. Their theater seats over 200, and I'd really hate to be talking to an empty room. Also, finally, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, Facebook under Exposing Pseudo Astronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. That's D R Astro Stu, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. Also, don't forget that every single rating that you give, rating and or review on things such as the iTunes Store, increases my ranking and visibility and helps promote the podcast. That wraps up this topic, temporarily, for the 83rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also comment on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on my blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page of the podcast, or even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message, even if I don't respond right away or even within a year, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please do write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, also tell friends and family. Also tell lots of people on various forums that you probably won't ever meet in real life, except for the SGU forum when you might meet them at TAM. 